computer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Women in Weightlifting podcast. We're joined tonight by a non-woman, uh, Dr. <laughs> Jeffrey Dermer, who is an MD, PhD, and is one of the world's experts on sleep. Um, and just thought it would be an interesting topic for uh, everyone to kind of hear about. And Jeff is a fantastically interesting human being. So Jess and I get to spend the next hour peppering him with questions about sleeping um, for your benefit. So um, Jeff, welcome to the show and thanks for coming. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Jess, for having me. I'm excited to talk to your to your audience through you guys and through questioning. And, and, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to some interesting discussion. So Jeff, you are, you're an MD, PhD, right? Yeah, I am uh, both a medical doctor and I'm a researcher. So I have a, an MD and I work as a neurologist uh, and sleep medicine physician on one side of the, the, my day. And the other half of my day is um, I'm a neuroscientist and a neuroanatomist by training. So I worked in the brain and brainstem of animals, including humans. Uh, to detect where sleep itself is, originates from and what sleep does within the brain and body access uh, uh, during the night and also the impact that that has on our day-to-day -day health and our wellness and our performance. And, and that's kind of what, we, I mean, I think that's kind of the crux of what we want to talk about, at least for the, the first episode of We Do This. <laughs> yeah. I, I, after our, Jeff and I met at Disneyland at Phil Andrews' wedding and there you go. Um, we were standing in line for Space Mountain, and so I got to I got to pick his brain for about forty five minutes and realized that he's just fantastically interesting to listen to. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, Jess, I will let you just get started with your questions, and then I'll kind of weigh in when I need to. Okay, I have so many questions, and I don't even know where to begin, but I'll just begin. So, my first question is mostly for my boyfriend. So he's a big gamer, and he doesn't. He always says, "I'll sleep when I'm dead." What, yeah. what would you say well what would you say to someone who says that well first off uh when you're dead you don't sleep so he's a, he's wrong <laughs> so just right off the bat just just like erroneous construct second thing is that um i understand the machismo and the cultural issue that is behind that statement because that's really more the issue it's not your boyfriend's issue it's our culture's issue the idea that we can go without sleep because it's the one thing we can give up, um, that's something that we've learned as a culture just in the last 60 years. And yeah. it's, it's a problem that is pervasive. It's, it's in our business. I work with um, businesses, big businesses across the United States. I work with CEOs of the largest Fortune 50 companies um, uh, across the U.S. and the world, as well as the best athletes, the most elite of all different disciplines. And you see it from all these different perspectives, all the way to truck drivers and airline pilots that I work with, where sleep itself is not highly valued because it's partially not understood. And if you look back 60 years ago, as I referenced that point in time, uh, you look back about 60 years ago, you see things like in, in our, our culture uh, evolving. And one of them was this little business called 7-Eleven. And if you remember 7-Eleven, it's actually called 7-Eleven because they opened at seven in the morning and they closed at 11 at night. Right. My grandmother used to say that was insane. No one's going to go there. I mean, the AMP supermarket <laughs> closed at eight o'clock because people should be home having dinner. It was a whole different mentality. But also, if you look back then, this was a period of time where the average American, the average adult American was sleeping eight hours a night on average. 
And that's not just like hopeful. That was the average. Nowadays, if you look 60 years ahead, 7-Eleven is now a 24-7 operation like all other operations accordingly. We now have 25% of our workforce in the United States working on ships against yeah. their circadian rhythm. We didn't have that 60 years ago. And we did have people in hospitals and police and firemen, you know, people working against, but on a really temporary basis. And the second thing is that as we've gotten forward and we've had this 24-7 construct, there are now the average sleep time is 6.2 hours. So in just 60 years, we went from a human average sleep time of eight hours, millions of people, down to 6.2. We did not evolve as a species in 60 years. There is, there's no such thing as 60-year evolution. What we're <laughs> doing right now is we're actually reaping the impact. If you look across uh, our country, you look at what the CDC and NIH are now focused on, and I'm actually part of the NIH uh, sleep disorder research advisory board, we're actually focused on population metrics to improve sleep duration, increase uh, consistency with sleep timing, and also uh, it, finding that the quality of sleep itself is actually suffering dramatically because of chronic diseases that have been perpetuated by this 24-7 culture we now live in. That quality right. of sleep is also a major problem and things like sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea, 20% of our population to 25% is suffering with this and not treating it. And RLS, restless leg syndrome, 10% of our population, we're not treating it. We're getting to like 10 to 15% of the population that needs that care and half of them are getting the therapy they need. So we have a real cultural issue and your boyfriend's response is just what he was taught because right. in that culture over those 60 years, sleep yeah. is the thing we give up and you know, you don't need it. We'll sleep when we're dead. 24 right. seven, I go to the 7-Eleven, get dinner anytime you want, right. get lunch anytime you want. Yeah. So that's a problem. That's yeah, a problem. And I, go ahead, Jess, sorry. I can't fault just my boyfriend because I did it too. It took me three years of weightlifting to understand the importance of sleep and recovery, but you know, I'm an attorney, I live full time. Yeah. So my the thing that I gave up, like you said, was sleep because that's where I could give a little bit. I can't give in my job and I have to train three hours a day. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what gave up until my body started breaking down. Yeah. And then I started sleeping more and reaping the benefits. And I think oddly enough, I just started going back to the office full time. And mm -hmm. when I was working from home, I was getting eight, nine hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Now I'm back to getting six, seven hours. So yeah. I'm having to adjust again and figure out what I need to do. So I guess my next question is, how does stress affect sleep? Well, I mean, sleep is actually a natural function that your brain and your body need. Uh, first of all, if you don't sleep, you die. There have been many, many experiments showing that, that that actually is true. And actually one of the, one of the um, founding kind of grandfathers of sleep medicine, clinical sleep medicine, just died on the 29th of November this year. Oh. Uh, Alan Rechtschaffen, well, he's, he was 92 or 94 <laughs> years old. So he, he lived a good long life. Wow. And Alan Rechtschaffen actually is very famous for actually developing the first um, system by which we look at polysomnographic activity that we record during sleep, which is called the sleep study or sleep test, of actually standardizing it across uh, species. So the first human-based testing, uh, the REC, the RNK, we call it, the Rechtschaffen-Kales 
Atlas is how we learned that in, in clinical seat medicine. Well, he also is the person that found out what happens to animals when you sleep deprive them. And he is the one that found that when you sleep deprive a rat and you put them on a turntable kind of device that every time the rat has an electrode in his brain, every time the rat falls into sleep, the electrode would kick on and turn the turntable. And uh, in the middle of the turntable was a piece of wood. So if the turntable turned, the rat would hit the wood and, and fall off into a water, a water basin. Oh, well, they no. found that if they do that, I know it sounds terrible, but it's, this is you know, part of the stuff we do in medical science. But if that happens, what happens over the course of just two weeks is the rat can't get to sleep. So it's actively being kept awake for those two weeks. And just in two weeks, the rat will die of over overwhelming sepsis, as well as inflammatory disease. So yeah. it's not that you'll have a seizure. It's not that your heart will stop. It's not that your, you know, your brain's going to have a stroke suddenly. It's that your immune system shuts down and your immune system protects you from the environment. And so the environment wow. kills you. So if you think about that <laughs> for a second, what yeah. sleep is actually doing for you on a night to night basis is it's giving you back that anti-inflammatory response to the environment because every day you work out every day you think every day you you go to work you're creating inflammatory responses in your body and your brain and these cytokines and um all of these 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 uh circulating hormones that create pro-inflammatory responses need sleep to cause the opposite effect the parasympathetic or also known as the uh, anti-inflammatory cytokine interleukin response that happens at night, as well as growth hormone production. So all of those things that actually help your body to repair, recover, make muscle, and also change uh, insulin and, and uh, hormone-related uh, growth potential, they happen at night, not in the daytime. So the, the key thing about stress is that stress activates pro-inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. Stress activates the sympathetic nervous system, the one you want to have activated right before a lift or right before any other activity. Um, we have to call into play your body and your brain. That is not what you want when you go to sleep. So as you build up stress through the day, you're activating sympathetic nervous system. You're activating all of those pro-inflammatory uh, processes in through your in immune system. And then at night, you're going to reap the downside of that. You're going to get the stress sitting there, holding your sympathetic nervous system up high and not allowing your parasympathetic sleep recovery system to replace it and you go to sleep. So what we often see is insomnia as a component of, you know, just sometimes it's just related to the moment. If you go to a competition, for instance, and all of a sudden you can't sleep, that's typical, right? Well, the idea here is that that's the sympathetic nervous system being jacked up. So how do you learn to replace the sympathetic with the parasympathetic? And that's really what, what I think training athletes, especially those that deal with these uh, issues related to performance, we try to train athletes to not just be ready and take caffeine and get all the sympathetic surge, yeah. but also be able to control your parasympathetic response so you can calm. Because one of the most important things is to be calm in the moment, not just to be hyped. If you're hyped, you might make mistakes. If you're calm, but also intense, you'll make the right moves. So what we typically see with stress is that people can't fall asleep, they can't stay asleep, and they typically have bad behaviors as a result of that. So they end up using light, getting on television, or getting, not television, getting on their computer, watching televisions, 
um, listening to music, doing something that's meaningful, like, you know, your taxes in the middle of the night or answering emails that you should not be answering in the middle of the night. Those sorts of things actually perpetuate the problem, increase the stress and make it more difficult to sleep. Eventually, people oftentimes with stress will create the, the will perpetuate it so that it becomes what we call chronic insomnia. And chronic insomnia is something we have to unwind using a, a cognitive behavioral therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI. Uh, that's the ultimate um, unwinding of that perpetuation process and getting rid of the cause of the insomnia. A lot of doctors or folks out there who don't do sleep medicine will just give you a sleep aid. Um, right. And those, those sleep aids will give you a temporary relief from your stress and a temporary relief to help you sleep. Maybe in some cases it'll work. In most cases where it's chronic perpetuated insomnia and the behaviors are involved, those medicines will not really help you at all. In fact, they could make things worse and uh, make you more reliant on those medications because the underlying problem has not been dealt with. Um, okay. So stress is a real issue and it's something that needs to be addressed by learning how to activate parasympathetic systems to deactivate sympathetic systems. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is about. That's also what we use meditation and breathing exercises for. And even imagery, like, you know, you'd use imagery before your event, you take a look at the bar, you think about what you're gonna do and you, you, you see it. And I work with swimmers and, and rowers. I was a rower myself, all these different athletes. We all use visualization and right. using imagery as a way to, to prepare. You can do the same thing prior to sleep. You can use imagery to calm the sympathetic nervous system. You can use imagery to come to bring your mind to a place where you can take a deep breath, where you don't have to worry about all the other things that happen in the day. There are a number of different techniques that can go along with that, like writing down your thoughts, writing down your worries, getting things out of your head onto paper, putting them aside so you have them in the morning, even if you wake up in the middle of the night, so you can get the stress out. Um, those are some immediate things. The other thing that I think is really important and people don't recognize is that stress builds up through the day. Um, just like sleepiness builds up through the day. So there's, there's this homeostatic process in your brain in this area called the, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus that actually activates for wakefulness. Well, there's an area right next to it called the ventral lateral preoptic area. Again, I'm a neuroanatomist. I will throw words out that you do not want to try to write down. But the VLPO is where sleep starts. And what we want to do is we want to activate that sleep center. And the, one of the ways that you do that is you reduce stress throughout the day. And that is, a, so if you go into a stressful, uh, you're a lawyer, go into a stressful courtroom <laughs> and you have a stressful meeting with a client, for instance, or with somebody in your law firm, which could happen, you have to take a step back when you leave that meeting and recognize the stress. And if you're able to recognize the stress, that's the moment to do the breathing exercise. That's the moment to take it down, to act, to, to change the balance towards parasympathetic and get rid of that sympathetic surge. And if you do that reliably, identify the stress, identify when stressed, and then use a technique that you know will reduce your heart rate, which you can use as a biofeedback component or your respiratory rate. You can then reduce the chances of having insomnia and stress-induced sleep problems later in the day. So that's another one that we like to use. Great. Thank you. Oh, this is so exciting. I have so many things. So when, ahead, you somebody, I mean, when you get somebody who wakes up in the middle of the night, is it just kind of doing that same thing? It's imagery. It's writing things down and getting the stress out, just lowering the stress level back down. Yeah. You want to lower that sympathetic surge. I mean, if you take a look at 
like if you have like a i've used this this aura ring and other people use apple watches whatever you have whoop bands those things actually are tracking heart rate variability there's some of them like this thing is tracking my oxygenation too those are really valuable inputs for you to realize hey my heart rate's too high let me calm myself down middle of the night waking up i'm a, i'm thinking about something that's driving me nuts i can't stop thinking get out of bed don't stay in your bed. Your bed is only there for sleep. If you use your bed for worrying and you use it for eating and you use it for television watching or getting on your phone, checking all your links, then it's going to be for that. Your bed is no longer going to be a place where you sleep. And that's, that's, the, that's the behavioral component of cognitive behavioral therapy, that we want to get your behaviors to echo what the use of that space is. So a bedroom is, I, I don't call it a bedroom, I call it a sleep sanctuary. I want you to think about the place where you sleep as a sanctuary for sleep. It's a shrine to sleep. It's not about entertainment. It's not about anything but comfort, darkness, quiet, and sleep. And then when you're awake, get out of the bed and get out of the bedroom. That happens in the middle of the night. Get out of the bed. Get out of the bedroom. Go into another room. Put some natural light on, some low light, nothing that's too bright in blue and green uh, wavelength. And do the things that help get you tired. Meditate. Take some deep breaths. Listen to something that's very natural, water, waves, wind. Do something that doesn't have any impact on your day. Read an article that helps you relax or read a book that's a story that's ongoing that you know will help you relax and fall asleep. Nothing too technical, nothing too novelty-based. Uh, and then go back to bed when you're yawning, when you actually feel like you have to, like, oh, I, got, I, gotta go. I can't stay awake anymore. That's when you want to go to bed. Because when you go to bed, you want to fall asleep. You don't want to stay awake in your bed. That's a very important component of cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Now, when we're talking about uh, data, I have a whoop. Okay. Um, and I know you wear a ring. What's, what, what in your mind is the best device to track? Sleep? Okay. That's a good question. Actually, I've done entire talks on this. Okay. <laughs> um, but what it really comes down to is the, what is your need for it? What's your use? What are you doing with that ring or ring? There it is, that <laughs> ring or that whoop band or that Apple watch. What's the utility of it? If it's something that you're using for tracking like the actigraphy component or the movement component and energy output, then find a, a device like a whoop band that's really good at that. That's what they are. They're based in actigraphy. That's what they're good at. Um, if you're looking at something like you have, say you wanted to track your cardiac uh, uh, activity and you have maybe AFib, which a lot of distance athletes actually have to deal with as they get older. Here's one right here. So uh -huh. I, I'd rather have an Apple Watch because they they have an actual algorithm <clears throat> that's FDA cleared to actually detect AFib. So that would be a great op reason for that. If you're trying to track um, heart rate variability and potentially readiness. There are things like the Aura Ring does that really well. It has an oxygen sensor in it too. So you want to see what your oxygen content looks like. The, each one of these devices is better at one thing or another. So when I look at nighttime related activity, when I want to see nighttime data, I typically use either um, their, the, the Aura Ring. I also typically use um, uh, the, the Apple Watch, which has a pretty good algorithm in it. Uh, and then there's um, uh, the... Uh, what's it called? The um, uh, Fitbit uh, has the, the charge actually has more heart rate variability data sets in it. 
So those are the things that I typically use for sleep, but there are others coming out. I mean, Withings has a new device, uh, a new new um, uh, device that actually gets uh, gets some pretty good ratings with oxygenation as well. Um, and there'll be new ones as, as we go further. Um, I, the other part of it is what can you wear that doesn't bother you? So to me, that's, that's like the most important question that goes along with what are you using it for? Um, I can sleep with a ring on. I can't sleep with a wristwatch on. No, I just, I. It drives me nuts. And so, you know, that's, that's why I wear this because it's, I can get day to day to day to day to day data over and over again. It's really repeatable. And it's it, within that data set, it's actually related to me. So that's something that I think is also a value to think about. Data itself, like the black box of what your sleep quality looks like, your REM, non-REM, none of these devices do that well. But they're not, they're not meant to do that. They're not diagnostic devices. You need an FDA cleared medical device. That's one of the things that my company does. We make FDA cleared medical devices that test your sleep and doctors use them in laboratories and at home to test you. That's okay. That's how you figure out quality issue. But these are really good, and some are better than others, at determining your duration and your timing of sleep. And so those are the behavioral aspects. So we typically use these rings and these watches to help people with their sleep behaviors. So they can start to track, hey, I'm not getting enough sleep. Or, you know, I ate a lot of food last night and my sleep looked like crap. Well, yeah, that's because you ate a lot of food last night and right before you went to bed, or you had alcohol and your temperature went up. So those are the things that we look at in terms of changing people's behaviors. That's where these devices actually work very nicely. And we use them with um, the Olympic lifting team for that reason, just to get people's behaviors in, in thought process. So you raised like four different questions for me. One, right. how much sleep should, should we be getting? Mm, good question. So duration, there's a lot of literature on sleep duration and the, and it's, there's a great deal of literature um, in multiple facets. One is, looking at uh, the, the impact in just normal, non-athletic people who are just general adults. General adults need seven to nine hours on average. So that's the, that's the well-documented um, outcomes-based research where we see this, this curvilinear relationship between sleep time. So if you look at sleep time on, on the, uh, the x-axis, you'll see you know six hours, seven hours, eight hours, nine, 10. And you look at the relationship of the numbers of hours of sleep to something else. And on the y-axis, you could have, um, you know, uh, hospitalizations or um, how many times you're out of work because of the flu or heart disease or hypertension. And what you see in all these studies is the same curvilinear response, which is if you sleep in the seven to nine hour range, you have very low chances of heart disease, mortality, all the other cognitive problems, uh, problems with uh, accidents, all in this lower range. You sleep a lot more than, or sorry, this is the less side. If you sleep less than, than um, six hours or seven hours, you get down to seven, six and a half, six hours. Under six hours, you get a huge increase in the percentage of people that have health-related problems. Same thing happens on the other side of the curve, but it's not as high. It's a little slower, lower. So if you go like to nine hours, 10 hours, you see a slight increase in the chances of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and cancers. We think that may also not necessarily be a biological signal, but it also has been noted to be associated with people who are ill and have um, other issues. That's why they're in bed. So duration in health means seven to nine hours for adults, most of us. 
Right. There are small numbers of us at the other ends that actually sleep less than seven hours and a very small number that sleep more than nine hours. And so I'm saying it's a range. It's not like everybody has to be right at that eight hour number. Just because I'm an eight hour sleeper doesn't make you know Mark an eight hour sleeper. He could be a seven and a half hour sleeper and you could be an, a nine hour sleeper and all of us are normal. The problem is that when you're an athlete, your metabolic output is much higher than um, NARPs, normal, uh, non-athletic, regular people is what we call NARPs. So non-athletic, regular people uh, are that group. The non-NARPs, those that are actually working out on a regular basis, are putting out a huge amount of metabolic activity, and we call metabolic equivalence. And if you look at some studies that look at the amount of metabolic equivalence by sport, you can predict the number of hours extra of sleep that are needed to recoup from those metabolic output. Because every time you go to, you, you do something, you use ATP. ATP is your you know, mitochondrial uh, foundation for energy production. When you use ATP, you cleave it and you make adenosine diphosphate and you, you have a free phosphate going along and you eventually get down to adenosine and free adenosine. Well, it turns out free adenosine in your central nervous system in particular is the homeostatic signal that triggers sleepiness. So as adenosine levels go up through the day, you use more and more energy, your sleepiness occurs and you fall asleep in, at night and you go to sleep, it goes down again. And so it's a homeostat. It's just like your temperature on your, on your wall, it's changing the temperature and keeping it constant. But for an athlete, you have a lot more energy output. And so you need more time to recoup from that energy output. So I typically tell athletes in high intensity, long, prolonged, especially lots of metabolic output. Uh, and we're talking like boxers and, you know, long distance runners, rowers, swimmers that are like working out for four hours, constant movement. That group in particular needs to extend their sleep by at least an hour and a half to two hours on a regular basis. And the funny thing is, if you look at those populations of athletes, they typically sleep one and a half to two hours longer on average than NARS. Um, weightlifters, uh, uh, football players, those that incur like a huge amount of single effort at one point in time, don't have the same metabolic equivalent output as distance and time related athletes. So you can add a half an hour to 45 minutes uh, or an hour uh, to your sleep time and you'll get ample recovery, additional recovery in that time period. Okay. Yeah. Does, does sleep need change over the course of your life, like from a toddler to a teen oh, to yeah. an adult? Okay. Yeah, uh, actually your sleep itself as a biological process is reflects, it reflects your development. So as a, as a tiny little infant, um, you actually sleep more than you're awake. And anybody who's had a baby, and I've had four of these kids, not me, my wife, but they, they sleep all day long, like 16 right. hours a day and they sleep in bouts. So they're not sleeping in a consolidated fashion. As they get older, up to about six months, they, their sleep time goes from like 16, 17 hours down to around 14 to 15 hours. And it becomes slightly more consolidated. There's usually goes to like a nighttime sleep period and then two long naps during the day. And then after six to seven, and, and you start to see a circadian rhythm develop by the time they're three to six months. And that circadian rhythm, is the timing part. So the duration starts to get a little less and the timing becomes more regular. The nap occurs about the same time. The sleep time at night is about the same. And as the kids get older and into toddler age, one, two, three years old, they tend to consolidate more into their nighttime sleep with one nap 
versus two naps. Um, so again, the time starts to go down a little bit. They get down to around 12 hours of sleep total. And then by the time you get to school age, we're looking at kids who are sleeping about 10 hours a night. And the school age kids need about 10 hours of sleep a night on average. And uh, it's usually in one bout, in, in one bout of the, the total night. Some kids continue to nap as well, but eventually that, that fades away by the time they're like six or seven. And then, you know, when you get into adolescence, there's another major change. The big change in adolescence is, is puberty. And puberty involves growth in the body and the brain. And that growth incurs a huge debt in terms of energy. And so what happens to kids when they get to that age is they um, not only have a higher sleep need than you believe they do, and they actually need about nine to 10 hours as well at that age, um, they also have a circadian shift. So kids normally go to bed like eight o'clock at night and they wake up at six o'clock in the morning or if you're like my eight-year-old before then, which is really <laughs> annoying. Um, and that, that is pretty much the same until you get to about 11, 12, 13 years old. Once you get hit puberty, all of a sudden the sleepiness doesn't occur until nine, 10, 11. And in some cases, even later, like one or two in the morning. Mm -hmm. And in some families where we call delayed sleep phase, um, there are night owls in the family that may actually become a problem when we call it delayed sleep phase disorder. That's a normal thing though, for kids in the puberty ages in, in like the eighth, eighth grade through into high school, they will get sleepier later and they'll feel that they can't get up until later too. So it turns out if you look at kids in high school age groups and that, that especially in the beginning of high school, but all through that high school age group, they're the most sleep deprived humans on earth. And we've actually demonstrated this with population-based research. CDC has shown this 66% uh, of kids in that group do not get the adequate duration of sleep, just duration, not even timing or quality, quality just yeah. they don't get enough duration. So that's a problem because school start times are too early for this group. Athlete athletics that occurs after school keeps kids up late and they actually can't get their homework done. So they're up later. Then you have devices and you add telephones and boyfriend, girlfriend problems and all the other social stuff that happens. In that ah. group. And you got a freaking disaster on your hands. So it's, it's a very difficult period of time for parents, for kids, right. but it's really important to recognize that that's normal, that they should be going to bed later and they should be getting up later. So there's a lot of movement now around in the research community to get school start times pushed back in this age group and it's happening. And I'm here in Denver and our school system, one of my good friends actually just published a study at the beginning of 2020 and then another paper mid-year that changed the, the Denver public school systems policy for high schools. And uh, her name's Lisa Melcher, great researcher. And her research actually changed policy across Denver's public school system. No high school is allowed to start until at least 840. Wow. So we're gonna, and we're gonna see high schools go later and later. I think the data is going to show, and it has been shown in many studies, that as kids move to this later time, not only do their grades get better and their SAT scores get better, their football teams and basketball teams and baseball teams and running teams get better. And it's and the, the, this is a big pushback from a lot of the coaches because they're like, oh, I only have them for two hours now, not three hours. Well, you know what? Those two hours are high quality two hours, not sleep deprived kid two hours. And your kids go home and they get the, they get the sleep they need. And that's been shown in many studies. So wow. that's, a big, that's a big deal. And then as you get into adult age, seven to nine hours is the average. 
we typically see people sleeping in the realm of like 9 30 10 o'clock till about six to eight o'clock in the morning um, those timing requirements as you get older become a little more advanced in other words people go to bed earlier they get they get up earlier that's a natural part of our circadian rhythm advancing as we get older and our sleep time tends to come down a little bit so seven to nine becomes seven to eight uh, in most page people over the age of 65. Um, huh. but again that's very independent or very dependent on the individual uh, and also your health because one of the things that we know about aging is that chronic diseases accumulate over time and that can impact your sleep and your sleep quality if you have you know arthritic joints like the old athlete i am you wake up with a throbbing wrist and your knee hurts and you've got you know all these whining problems related to your past athletics that's an issue for your sleep so you know you have to start doing more pt than working out just so you can sleep better um, so yeah, it changes quite a bit over the course of a lifetime, uh, and it's not just in one domain. So that, that the quality uh, of your sleep changes, the duration of your, your sleep changes, and the timing of your sleep changes as, as you go through your life. So it's complicated. <laughs> so you, met, you, you mentioned a couple of things about food and alcohol, um, mm -hmm. and then caffeine, of course. Um, what, like, how does alcohol affect sleep? How does caffeine affect sleep? How does food affect sleep? Good question. Okay, so we'll start with alcohol. Alcohol is a potent GABA agonist. And so in the brain, it actually, it, it low doses causes a slight hyper excitability due to disinhibition. Um, but once you get past that slight disinhibition after a couple of drinks, you get into sleep inducing mode, which actually activates the sleep centers. And you actually, people use alcohol oftentimes to help them fall asleep. It's a big problem though, because if you use it to fall asleep, it's not like it's necessarily alcoholism or habit forming. That's one problem. But the other major problem is that alcohol is metabolized by your liver very quickly while you're sleeping. So within three to five hours, based on the ounces of alcohol you drink, that, that alcohol is completely metabolized. Now, okay, big deal. So you have to get up, go to the bathroom. That's one thing. The other thing is that uh, what happens with alcohol is alcohol not only activates the GABA system to help you sleep or make you fall asleep sooner, it also inhibits REM sleep. So alcohol is a potent REM uh, inhibitor in the brainstem uh, of animals of all kinds and in humans as well. And the problem with that is that every 90 to 120 minutes when you're sleeping, you go through a REM cycle and then go into non-REM. And then another 90 to 120 minutes later, another REM cycle and non-REM. And you usually go through four or five of these cycles in a regular night. If you drink alcohol, you don't go through the first, the second, and sometimes the third REM cycle. So all you have is REM at the very end of the night. That's problematic for a couple of reasons. One, REM itself is a very disturbing kind of sleep. It's not refreshing. It's heart rate goes up to like 100. Um, respiratory rate goes up. You go through all kinds of emotional uh, activations of an area of the brain called the limbic system and the amygdala, which is uh, associated with uh, fear conditioning. And those activations can cause dreams and weird emotional responses that are activating. So that you're not, you're actually kind of disturbing your sleep a little bit. When you drink alcohol and you go into those later REM cycles, you get what's called REM rebound. And the REM becomes far more active and you end up with even more crazy dreams like the pink elephant kinds of things that you see in withdrawal symptoms. That's all because REM itself is um, rebounding. And so it's very disturbing and you wake up very sleep deprived uh, from those kinds of nights. The second thing is that REM is actually a really important phase of your existence. 
you have three phases of existence, REM sleep, non-REM sleep, and wake. That's it. Those are normal. When you take out one of them, you only get these two. And when you take out this one, you lose a lot of the basic fundamentals that REM provides, like memory formation. It's actually a part of procedural memory creation. So the idea of I learned a new skill yesterday and I went to sleep and I, you, you get rid of my REM sleep by waking me up every time I go into REM, I'll have less ability to perform the next day. And if you think about that for an athlete or for anybody who's trying to perform a new skill, that's a big problem. So alcohol can really impair your ability to learn new um, procedural activities and, and actually impair your ability to perform. Um, so alcohol has those effects. Caffeine, the most worldwide used drug, and it is a drug because caffeine works in your brain, just like every neurochemical uh, that's, over, I mean, things like, if you think about some of the things that we have over the counter these days, they would never be approved by the FDA, <laughs> but we still use things like Benadryl. You know, that's a, an antihistamine. Histamine is your normal neurochemical for wakefulness. When you take an antihistamine, you're knocking out wakeful centers of your brain, not just the centers in your nose that actually shrink tissue. There's a whole nother discussion about that. Well, yeah. caffeine's like that too. Caffeine gives you that little jolt of uh, ad adrenaline and actually activates your sympathetic nervous system by activating a part of the, of the uh, hypothalamus called the DL DLMO, the dorsal lateral medial optic nerve, uh, nucleus. By doing that, it actually causes uh, your hormones to actually increase adrenaline uh, production and you get norepinephrine activation, which causes heart rate activation, respiratory rate activation, and you get this adrenaline effect. That's one thing it does. The other thing that caffeine does, and remember we talked about adenosine earlier, adenosine goes up during the day and it goes down at night. Yeah. Caffeine is an adenosine antagonist. So it's a neurochemical antagonist. It goes to the brain and it antagonizes the adenosine signal, the natural signal for sleepiness. That's why it works really well in the morning, if you think about it. So in the morning, when you have a little of adenosine hanging around and you get that sort of hangover, you take a cup of coffee, you feel better. It's because it knocked out that adenosine so you can feel more alert because it knocked out the sleep response. That's fine in the morning. You use caffeine later in the day, you're knocking out your sleep response. You can't get your sleep response to respond to the adenosine that's accumulating because you're knocking it out. And I've heard people many times say, oh, I can drink coffee and go to sleep. You can, but you know what your sleep looks like? It looks like up and down, up and down, up and down all night long. You don't really sleep well. You don't get into the deeper stages of non-REM sleep and go through normal REM cycles like you need, like, like when alcohol causes that effect on REM, caffeine actually affects all of the stages. So I, I really, I, you know, I know there's a lot of caffeine, especially in like prepared drinks uh, for athletes, especially as recovery drinks or even pre-workout drinks. Right. I, I really hesitate to suggest that, that athletes use those because one of the things you have to do as an athlete is learn to control your response to a situation. And your response to a situation is about that, what we talked about before, the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic sympathetic activation. If you're constantly using medicine drugs that activate that sympathetic surge constantly for performance, you're not actually learning how to use your parasympathetic nervous system to calm. So when you go into competition, all you have is sympathetic. You don't have the ability to use calming techniques, visualization, all of the, those um, more effective uh, uh, performance enhancing components of your natural, of your natural uh, uh, brain activity. 
So I, I caution athletes for in terms of the use of these stimulants because uh, they may have a temporary effect, but they're really not um, beneficial in the long run. They, they're very much like taking a sleep aid when it's really not the cause of your sleep problem. So when, when should you not, and when, should, when, should, when should someone stop? Yeah, so if you, caffeine, caffeine has about an eight hour half-life. <laughs> so if you take some caffeine in the morning, it's with you for about eight hours um, in most people. If the more the more caffeine you drink, the shorter that period is. But at the same time, it's still hanging around and it's affecting your adenosine. Drinking it in the morning, getting up and going, that's fine. That, that's, that's probably going to be helpful. And it's been shown in many studies to be helpful, especially when we're looking at performance, pilots, uh, drivers, athletes, people that get up and have a little sleep, a hangover, knocking that out, very effective. Using it later in the day for performance enhancement, it, it kind of is a performance enhancement in many of these drinks and, and foods is probably not a good idea because you're inhibiting your natural system for sleep, which is your recovery for the next day when you have to perform again. So if you keep using caffeine late in the day, you're going to keep feeling you have to use caffeine in the morning because you didn't get enough sleep. Mm. I would suggest to just knock it out of that period of time and entirely. It'll be a little difficult in the beginning because you're used to it. But if you knock it out of, of some of your workouts, get more control of your workouts from your own body's autonomic system, you'll find that your mornings are better. You'll be able to do it yourself and you won't need this enhancement, which actually doesn't help you. It, it can actually impair your cardiac function in some studies. So before we move on to food, I wanted to ask about like Ambien and Xanax, things like that yeah. that people take to sleep. What, do you, what are your thoughts on those? Um, so can can yeah. I just interrupt? Can you also touch on like melatonin? Sure. And sure. if you recommend any supplements <laughs> for sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So, so sleep aids um, as a category is very broad. I brought up Benadryl earlier. It's the most common over-the-counter sleep aid mm -hmm. in the world. It's in every formulation that has the word PM at the end of it. It's Benadryl you're taking as an antihistamine. So diphenhydramine uh, inhibits the histamine system, which is the wake-promoting system of the brain. It doesn't actually help you sleep. It helps remove wake. So think about that for a second. If you're going to remove wake, why is my wake system on? You know, that's the, that's the question you should be asking yourself. Is it that you've been drinking too much caffeine? <laughs> is it that you, you know, have not been getting enough sleep? Have you been uh, thwarting your sleep by getting up too early and doing too many workouts? What's the pro what's actually causing that? So before you start using a sleep aid, start to examine the other side, your wake procedures. What are you using for wake? What are you doing to make yourself wake? Because a lot of those chemicals and stimulants may be causing your problem. You don't actually need a sleep aid. You need to get rid of the other thing that's causing your sleep problem. That's one. The other is perpetuating behaviors. And we talked about that earlier. If you're doing things that are activating the brain through light and through you know, novel stimuli, that's your problem. It's not that you need a sleep aid. In fact, a sleep aid probably won't help you that much. Now, if you've eliminated all those things and you've gotten rid of the caffeine and you're still having problems sleeping, you could have a temporary issue, uh, you know, like a, a, a situational insomnia that would benefit you, you with, a, with a sleep aid. In the last, we'll say 20 years, there are a whole new class of sleep aids that came out. Ambien was one of the first in that class that actually are very specific in their activity within that GABA system. I mentioned earlier that alcohol kind of permeates all the GABA receptors and subtypes. 
Well, it turns out that, that um, the, the medicines that we used to use for sleep, the benzodiazepines, do kind of a similar thing. They activate all different types of GABA receptors, not just the ones for sleep. But as time went on, pharmaceutical companies figured out that they could design drugs to actually activate just the receptors associated with sleep in the GABA system with very little overlap with other, other uh, GABA receptors. That's what Ambien is. That's what Lunesta is. Um, that's, that's how they work. They work at these receptors at a very specific place. So they're far better sleep aids than all the other things that we've heard about before. They get a bad rap because they're often used in situations by doctors that are not sleep doctors. And there are outcomes sometimes that are not good, like sleepwalking and other behaviors that can occur when somebody who shouldn't be getting these medicines gets these medicines, or in cases where they give the medicine and don't treat the actual cause of the sleep problem. Um, so that's a caveat to understand that you need to talk to a sleep doctor about these meds, not just your family doctor. That, that's, it's a, these are neurochemicals that affect your brain. They are not just like skin creams. You've got to think about it from the perspective of who's going to treat your brain to help you sleep. That's a, probably a sleep doctor, neurologist person like me. Um, so that's the thing about uh, the sleep aids particularly. The other thing about melatonin as a sleep aid is that melatonin is a naturally produced uh, hormone. It's made in uh, the pituitary gland in the middle of the head every night uh, before you go to sleep, about five hours before you go to sleep, there's a slight increase in your uh, melatonin production. And then it rapidly increases as darkness occurs and you close your eyes and go to sleep and it increases throughout the night. And in the morning when you open your eyes and you wake up, melatonin crashes down. So it's, we also happen to call it the hormone of darkness for that reason, because it increases with darkness and light. If you pulse light at somebody in the middle of the night, it'll shut off the hormone of, of melatonin. This is why light is such an important thing to avoid because your natural hormone that helps you, we believe, maintain sleep and keep a circadian rhythm, that timing part, remember the duration, timing, quality, that timing component is maintained by your melatonin system. So um, taking melatonin can actually throw off your timing system in a way that may not be good for you. And so as a sleep aid, it's really not that great. We look at it more as a timing aid. So when you wanna change time zones or if you want to you know, reinforce a sleep time change, melatonin, an additional amount of melatonin, one, two, three milligrams of melatonin can be effective at helping you to maintain that time change. The other way we use melatonin is in very low dose. Um, so using like micrograms, half a milligram or less, uh, five hours before your intended bedtime. By doing that, you don't actually have the sleep inducing effects of a higher dose of melatonin. You get the timing effect only. It'll help you capture your natural rhythm for, for melatonin uh, secretion. The only caveat is you can't have a lot of light in that period before your sleep time, or you're going to just negate all the effect that you have there. So yeah, we do use melatonin with athletes, specifically those that are traveling, um, oftentimes readjusting to sleep times. And also um, for those that have either, either low light vision, like people who don't have uh, vision, so blind athletes, uh, we use that all the time because they don't have light as a signal for day and night. All they have is melatonin. And so sometimes they can kind of free run on their own and not be associated, not be connected to the environment very well. So using a little exogenous melatonin can help to promote in endogenous melatonin production um, that keeps them on a schedule. Okay. 
any sleep supplements that you recommend magnesium or <laughs> yeah a lot of people use magnesium um, <laughs> uh, a lot of people um, like to use things that actually help calm their muscles just so they can get to sleep it's not really so much a sleep aid as just a calming um it's actually it's called calm right that's, so that's one of those those you can stir in, a, in water and drink before you go to bed yeah th those are all helpful and and you know chamomile tea is quite effective it turns out there's some studies that show chamomile tea and valerian root tea help to induce a, a, a parasympathetic tone uh, change so that you can fall asleep and stay asleep better um, so those are the ones I typically use, and I've actually used them with uh, Olympic athletes, and they find them to be effective. And they also don't have a lot of side effects. I mean, that's the main thing is we want to use things that don't have side effects. Supplements can sometimes have side effects, um, and they may not always be good. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't recommend like this, this supplement is great for everybody. Right. It really depends on the individual, but I do think that things like chamomile tea and valerian root tea can be used by anybody because they um they kind of work in a similar in a similar way in the GABA system so jeff did you put um benzos in the same category as alcohol or do they go in the same category as like ambient no not in the ambient category they ambient's the huge improvement over them alcohol as a as a neurochemical works across many different receptors it doesn't just work in one receptor subtype but it works in all these GABA receptors so it causes myorelaxation you lose airway tone you lose muscle tone uh, it causes it reduces anxiety uh, it actually has a lot of other effects benzodiazepines actually were developed as anti-epileptic medications originally so they actually by using GABA which is the major inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter in the brain you can actually shut down a seizure right away mm -hmm. um, so that's where benzodiazepines originally barbiturates were used then benzodiazepines uh, and then we still, and we have some benzodiazepines that are longer acting and are, are very potent, but they tend to help more with sleep and they're not very good anti-epileptic drugs. Um, so, you know, clonazepine, uh, clonazepam is one of them. Tamazepam is another. Uh, Restoril is the other name for that. Those were used by my mom's generation. And so that was something that was used all the way up until I was in medical school. I'm saying Restoril, why are we using this? And Ambien came out and a number of other uh, drugs that were much more specific came out. So we really abandoned the use of those and use them sometimes when there's overlapping anxiety disorders in sleep, but really it's a very select use of them. Um, but Ambien and Lunesta and the group that actually came after that are all far more effective. And now, now we have medicines um, that are being developed to uh, work within uh, a system that actually is associated with not the histamine system, but the hypocretin system. Histamine and hypocretin are your wake-promoting neuro, uh, neurotransmitters in the posterior hypothalamus. Well, there's now drugs that are being used to inhibit uh, not just histamine, but hypocretin. And they're oh. significantly beneficial for people with um, uh, insomnia in some cases. So that's a new insomnia class of medication that's come out. It has some side effects that we have to be careful with because these are like antihistamines associated with reducing your arousal systems activation. So they're not directly working on sleep um, and they have to be handled very carefully. So that's something that you would want to definitely have a neurologist or your sleep medicine specialist working with you on those. All right, so we have about five minutes before you have to leave to go get your COVID booster. Yeah, so. I know. We're, this went by so quickly. So can, can we address food really quick? And then yeah. can, you yeah. tell, can you tell people, last sure. question, top three things they can do today to improve their sleep? Top three things they can do? Oh, 
first off, create a regular behavioral pattern around your sleep. Think about every day you wake up. You wake up in the morning and you do pretty much the same thing every day where you try to. You brush your teeth, you get some food, you know, it's a regular habit that you have. And especially if you have kids and you got to get them to school, it's a regular habit. Mm. Treat yourself the same way you treat your kids at night. What do you do with kids often? You read a book, you get brush their teeth, they take a bath, all of these calming behaviors before they go yeah, to it. bed. We should be doing the same for ourselves, calming behaviors before we go to bed. Right. You don't just get into bed and sleep. You're setting yourself up for failure by doing that. So that's number one. Create a routine for yourself that is enjoyable. It doesn't have to be an hour. It could be 15 to 20 minutes or a half hour, but use meditation. Use the things that in the middle of the night, if you happen to wake up, you can use them again to help yourself fall asleep again. That's number one. Number two, address the issue of your bedroom. Look at your bedroom critically from the perspective of what I said before, a sleep sanctuary. Don't treat it like a bedroom. Treat it like a sleep sanctuary. Is there a television in your sleep sanctuary? How is that helping your sleep? Is there a phone that is lit up at night and making you look at your LinkedIn you know, over and over again? That's not conducive to sleep. Novelty, light, noise, temperature. Get the temperature down, 68 or lower. Get your sheets comfortable, your bed comfortable. Make that room a very great place for sleep. That's what it needs to be. That's number two. Number three is evaluate what you're doing during the day. If you're drinking alcohol, you're drinking caffeine, you're using neurostimulants, those are the things that are creating a sleep problem. Most oftentimes, you don't need a sleep aid. You need to get rid of things that you've been doing to yourself without the knowledge of knowing that they have this impact. As a sleep doctor, most of the time, I take people off of things. I don't put them onto things. I remove stuff and let sleep naturally return with the understanding that this is a behavior that you can help to promote. Um, and you just promote that behavior by doing the things that you do for your kids. Think about it that way. Yeah, that's a great way to look All at right. it. All right, so Jeff, what I would, honestly, what I'd like to do is schedule another session. We'll do this as part one of two. <laughs> uh, but I thank you so much for, for you know, yeah. joining us tonight. And um, thank you so much. For yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. And, and, and I stand by my statement that he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Yeah, and now now I can go yell at my boyfriend about how he don't yell at him. No, you know what's a better a better thing to tell your boyfriend? Tell him that he has been that his mind has been captured by the culture, that he's been taken over. He's not his own. He's not thinking correctly. He's not using his own mind. He's letting the culture. Not like that either. So that's great. And by the way, Jess, I believe that is not your boyfriend anymore. Oh right, I'm calling him my boyfriend, but he's my fiance now. Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. You'll get out of the habit eventually. You know what? He should always treat you like you're his girlfriend from this point forward. My, we go on date nights. I have to ask her out. It's like a really important part. Don't ever stop courting each other. Continue oh, to court each other your whole life. It'll be so I'll much fun. I'll tell him that too. I have so much to tell him. <laughs> All right, Jess, hold on All a second. Right, and Jeff, I will let you go get your uh, COVID booster. But thanks. Thank for, thanks you. For thanks, guys.